the commissions all argue that equivalence runs north-south uh, and south-north, that actually it's equivalence across the island. Now, the governments aren't necessarily on the same page as that, so there is there is a degree, I, I wouldn't say controversy, because it, it's never it's important, it's never come before court, right? So we've never had uh, any judicial body saying exactly what this means. So we're still in a sort of a realm of interpretations. Hello and welcome to this month's Aaron's Podcast. I'm Rory Montgomery. This month's topic is human rights. And our discussion is going to be based on an article uh, which has recently appeared in Irish Studies and International Affairs called Mapping the Tapestry, National and International Human Rights Frameworks in Northern Ireland and Ireland. And I'm delighted to be joined by the two co-authors, uh, Professor Catherine McNeely and Professor Aoife O'Donoghue, uh, both of the School of Law at Queen's University, Belfast. Maybe I can start with you, Aoife. The tapestry metaphor is one you use uh, throughout the the article. Um, and maybe you might just explain where that comes from and, and, and why you think it's so uh, opposite a, a metaphor. Uh, thanks, Rory, and thanks for having us. We're, we're both delighted to be here uh, and to be doing the podcast. I suppose it, the tapestry metaphor comes from different levels. I suppose one part of it is because it's part of a, a much broader project, a, a mapping project that was led by Oren Doyle at uh, Trinity and Chris McCrudden with us at Queen's. And in some ways, we fit into a much broader picture of mapping that's been going on uh, of the law that across lots of areas. So land law, um, environmental law, medical law, administrative law, I could, I could go on within the project. So in some ways, it, sort of, it reflects that we are part of a much broader picture within the project itself um, as regards to understanding how, the, I suppose, in the last hundred years, where the law on the island has departed from each other, where it's stayed the same, um, where perhaps we could learn across the jurisdictions um, and where cooperation is very much needed or where areas, I suppose, where, where it's less, less important or less critical that there be cooperation. So within that context, part of the choice the, of the tapestry is to say, well, you know, it's we fit into a much broader area of, of law and political developments that has been going on. I think Catherine probably would like to say a two, few words there on that too. Yes, I think just to add to that, that this is quite a complex area of law. And when we approached the project of mapping um, the human rights frameworks, we thought that the tapestry metaphor really helped us as authors to understand what's going on in this area. But also it's a, a tool for readers as well to help readers get um, an easy access in and to start to think about what are quite complex nuanced frameworks in a, a kind of accessible manner. Um, so I suppose what we argue in, in the metaphor is that human rights frameworks are interwoven across these jurisdictions. So across Northern Ireland and Ireland, also within the UK itself and the different regions and, and devolved arrangements, and also at the regional and international levels. So you can see there, there's a lot of threads that, that come together and are interwoven in a very um, interesting way and a way that we seek to um, make clear throughout the paper. Um, and also very importantly, I think, 
to go with the tapestry metaphor, these threads have been interwoven across a long period of time. So the the picture that emerges is a kind of iterative one. um, And also you can't pull on one thread without pulling on others. Everything is kind of texturized and and interconnected. Um, So we hope that that's a useful way to, to start to think about this area of law. Not quite as old as the Bayer tapestry, but uh, but but old enough all 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 the same. Um, now maybe Catherine to continue with you, just the the scope of the paper because there are you've already given an indication of some of the things you you deal with, but there are things you don't deal with very very deliberately as as well. Yeah, so uh, the scope of the paper really hangs around a two-pronged approach. Um, We started with a chronological starting point or or remit, um, and that was 1998. And and we can speak about this a little bit um, later on. Um, This is a significant point for human rights structures in Northern Ireland and also the UK and Ireland more generally. Um, So it was a significant date and we used that um, as a kind of watershed moment looking at everything post-98. And Secondly, in terms of scope, um, we took, I suppose, a methodological remit, which was to look at institutions and uh, statutory wider legal frameworks, for example, rather than substantive rights. Um, so we take that approach of looking at the human rights bodies. We look at uh, the, the international courts, international monitoring bodies, etc., rather than, for example, looking at substantive rights provisions. Um, and Aoife, you might be able to say a little bit more about that too. Within the the broader project, um, there are rights covered. So there are people doing papers on medical health law, for instance, um, looking at religion, um, the right to religion, right to um, practice your religion. Um, There's work on environmental law and environmental rights going on across the project. So we were also kind of aware that they, you know, it's not that rights were entirely omitted from from the project itself, but that it might be useful to look at the institutions from that perspective. Um, and also because we were starting in 1998, that some of these institutions were like the human rights bodies, for instance. So we talk about the um, Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission, the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission, the Equality Commission from Northern Ireland, but also very importantly, there's a the joint committee that not everyone's necessarily aware of, where all those bodies come together and and do some really interesting work and have done for the last 25 years um, that it you know some of those bodies are are new they're they're 1998 bodies um, and reflect the sort of uh, legal landscape that that come that comes out of that you know it's a short paper in lots of ways there are bodies like for instance worry the civil service that we don't really cover in huge detail but are you know critically important when you talk about human rights and enforcement and budgets and where emphasis is laid and interpretation on a day to day basis or indeed the psni and uh, garda shiakana we also didn't cover policing um which has a huge impact naturally enough as does, does criminal justice more generally so while we did take that broad scope, we went you know, to the UN, we went to European, um, the Council of Europe, the European Court of Human Rights, looking at the courts, because obviously from a rights perspective, um, Ireland and Northern Ireland, there's a, there, the courts play a really important role of interpretation and developing rights and always have done, even prior to 1998. But of course, then when you're talking about the courts, you also have to talk about the Supreme Court in London, because that's also very important and significant when it comes to the development of rights in the island. So we we do, while we, we try to in, 
you know, cross all the levels um, by necessity of the length of the paper. It did mean that some important bodies uh, weren't weren't covered. So there is still lots. I think myself and Catherine would both agree on this, that there is a lot that still needs to be done on this in lots of ways. We see the paper as a kind of jumping off point uh, for ourselves, but for anybody, really, to be honest. Um, I don't think we're laying claim to this territory or anything. Um, that there, there is a lot that still needs to be done. And I think that's probably true for the whole project, actually, the whole mapping project, that it is supposed to be starting those initial discussions and thinking them through rather than saying this is a this is the total picture and a detailed picture. And this is all you need to know if you want to know about institutions. Catherine, I mean, yeah, you've, you've both already talked about the various bodies in, involved. I mean, to what extent are the institutional arrangements the same between the North and, and the South and to what extent do they do they differ? And I suppose maybe a word about the fact that we have a written constitution and, and, and how that sort of um, affects things. Yeah, absolutely. So a, a key part of the, the paper and the project more generally is mapping points of convergence and divergence. Um, and across all areas of law between Northern Ireland and, and Ireland, there's going to be both. Um, and that's definitely the case for human rights. So when we talk about the bodies, um, we see a significant degree of convergence with convergence with the national human rights bodies. We have um, three national human rights bodies on the island, the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission, uh, the Equal Equality Commission for Northern Ireland uh, and then in the south we have the Irish Human Rights and Equalities Commission and all of those bodies came out of the, the Belfast Good Friday Agreement in 1998 and were designed to have a degree of um, comparable working in terms of their remit, their mandate etc. So those bodies um, have a, a similar purpose I guess for that reason and they also have collaborative working methods including uh, the Joint Committee for Human Rights which involves the Northern Irish Human Rights Commission and the, the Irish uh, Commission on Human Rights and Equalities. So there is a significant degree of mirroring, I guess, with the national bodies. Um, we can also look at, I suppose, the international level as well. Uh, and as Aoife has mentioned, courts like the European Court of Human Rights, the European Court of Justice, um, which have had an influence on the domestic jurisprudence uh, at the national level in the UK and Ireland. Um, and we can also look at monitoring bodies within the Council of Europe system and within the UN system. Um, one example that we, we talk about in the paper is the, the Human Rights Council's Universal Periodic Review, um, which is a universal monitoring mechanism at the UN, which both Ireland and uh, the UK have engaged in. And we, again, we can see comparable levels of engagement, both states uh, receiving recommendations to enhance their human rights obligations um, and, and both states taking a degree of action as a result of those kind of mechanisms. So um, definitely there's significant points of convergence between um, the frameworks of institutions that are in place. You've already mentioned the importance of 1998 and in a way the, the starting point for the, the structures we have today. Uh, but Aoife, more generally, you, you talk in the paper about the importance of the concept of uh, equivalence um, of, of treatment. And maybe you might tell us a bit about you know where that is to be found in the Good Friday Agreement, and and then maybe you know how has it developed, um, how has the concept developed, um, and what practical effects has it uh, had? Well, equivalence is is really, I suppose, it's a really interesting uh, and still quite op quite open 
part of the agreement. Um, so it's in two places. Uh, one is with regard to rights and the other one is actually with regard to the institutions. Um, so the institutions that Catherine's already talked about, the human rights bodies. So it, it is with regard to kind of the substantive rights themselves, but also um, with regard to those institutions. And if we're thinking from the institutions, it would be, say, for instance, around remit, that they'd have equivalent remits or equivalent funding. It's always important to say when we talk about equivalent, and this would be uh, both myself and Catherine are international lawyers. So like equivalence doesn't mean exactly the same. That doesn't mean that they have to be word for word the same or they have to operate in the same way. But sort of it's more an outcome driven or the outcomes more or less alike. They, they don't, it, there isn't that sort of, same with reciprocity. You don't have to be exactly the same in order to be reciprocal. One of the interesting things about it is that the text itself looks to, and I kind of bear reading it, only to be about the, about the Republic's law. Um, because at the time of the 1998 agreement, there was discussion about the Irish uh, constitution, as you, as you mentioned, Rory, as a, a written, con- or a fully written, uh, fully documented constitution. And what were the kind of gaps that existed there and the need for the republic to, to you know lift lift its rights coverage um what's been interesting since and this is the the commissions all argue that equivalence runs north south uh, and south north that actually it's equivalence across the island now the governments aren't necessarily on the same page as that so there is there is a degree, I, I wouldn't say controversy because it, it's never, it's important, it's never come before court, right? So we've never had uh, any judicial body saying exactly what this means. So we're still in a sort of a realm of interpretation. So the commissions are very clear. They think it means both directions. The the governments, when they have had, had said things, have mainly said that they think it applies to the Republic. But there, I would say it's kind of... Uh, open at the moment. The other thing is, I suppose, where and when equivalence comes up. So the two most obvious examples recently would be with regard to marriage equality and reproductive justice. And what was interesting from that perspective, and I think from an activist perspective across the island, was the utility of the language to talk about, you know, if there is marriage equality in one part, then really there should be marriage equality across the island. Similar with abortion access, that if if one part is moving and and as from an activist perspective, the, the ability to use the other's progress or your own lack of to push for change um, because it's a way of highlighting you know the differences you can be one person can be living uh, you know five miles away from each other in Fermanagh Amman and, and have different you know access to, to rights one of the a potential future one might be if if the referendum um goes ahead with regard to care and replacing the woman in the home provision in the constitution with care. Um, and depending on what that looks like, which we don't, we don't know yet, but depending on what that looks like, potentially that might open a, a gap with regard to the recognition of care and the rights associated with care. And that potentially, I mean, we, we don't know yet, but that could be something in the future where it could be, it could become important. So it does, it does open. And, and you mentioned about the UK constitution being, uh, you know, on documented and and i think in you know in lots of ways that opens a flexibility where the equivalence gap can be caught up on quite 
quite quickly. And with regard to safe reproductive justice, that came out of Westminster. It was Westminster introduced the legislation. And because of the flexibility around an undocumented constitution, even though actually with regard to devolution, all that is in fact written down. I mean, there's lots of bits of the UK constitution that is written down. It's just written down in lots of different places um, where where it does allow for a speedness that perhaps referendums in the Republic uh, don't, right? Because you have to go through various different steps and paths and have those public discussions. Um, so it, it it's uh, up to this point, it's, it's been, I think, of use to activists and to the commissions, um, and it opens up a space of discussion, which is quite useful, but it's still the exact parameters of what it means. Um, I mean, there's probably only of a concern to lawyers and academic lawyers at this point, I think is probably who are <laughs> most concerned about it. Um, but it is still that it's still quite open, open textures. And from the tapestry perspective, it's kind of an interesting part of, of where you where you fit that into the interweaving of rights and, and points of convergence and does it require convergence actually and and uh, necess- necessitates move away from divergence of rights in fact on the island a rather a rather crude um question uh, in terms of resourcing which you, you mentioned earlier as an important factor um, and indeed sort of civil service and political commitment uh, to these bodies uh, any any differences in in levels of support between north and south over the over the 25 years? One issue was when the two bodies in the in the Republic were joined together. So we used to have a separate um, equality commission in the Republic. And when the two bodies were joined together, that was a concern that would it would the powers be cut or the budget be cut in in it? And initially certainly that wasn't. There there post uh, the financial crash, a, a gap did develop. Um, but there were also cuts in, I think they, they were almost equivalent in their cuts uh, rather than equivalent in, in going up. There, the Northern Ireland bodies have a significant role under uh, the Windsor Protocol um, and have they have seen their budget increase recently because they have a huge role, actually, <laughs> in monitoring Article 2 the, of the Windsor Protocol, um, or the Windsor Framework. The budget in the Republic has recently um, been increased, well, I say recently, probably about 18 months ago, um, but I think not to the extent that the Northern Ireland bodies have. And I, I do think it do, there it hasn't, I think, come up as a political issue lately, but I, I do think it, it is something that both commissions are aware of um, because their ability to do, I mean, they did huge amounts of work jointly and separately around Brexit. I mean, huge volumes of work. And that took up a huge amount of the resource, which meant other issues weren't being, I mean, naturally enough, they had to make resource choices and other issues weren't covered. So I do think the budget, budgetary questions are extremely important. And I think particularly over the next four or five years, as as the Northern Ireland bodies take on these um, Windsor roles, that it'll become increasingly important that, that those budgets are kept in Equivalent alignment. Obviously, you know the cost of cost of running an organisation is different north north in Northern Ireland and then and in the Republic. Just just very briefly before we move on to Brexit, Catherine, um, you you mentioned earlier the, the you know the existence of this joint committee, if I have the term right, maybe not, um, of the two um, human rights commissions, uh, and Aoife just mentioned the the work that was done together on on Brexit uh, how 
How effective and meaningful um, has that cooperation actually been? I think that was a useful um, structure that was built into the agreement to um, facilitate that north-south dialogue. Um, and as Aoife has mentioned, there has been a lot of discussion of a joint committee on issues such as Brexit um, recently, albeit the committee has, has worked on a variety of, of different topics across um, the island. Uh, another piece of work that the, the joint committee was um given the, the authority to look at in the agreement was a charter um, for rights for the island. Um, so that work took place between uh, their, their first meetings in, in 2001 and was delivered in, in 2011 um, to governments. So there's been a lot of effective working, I think, and that has been a useful forum to um, discuss these points of equivalence, um, discuss, I, I guess, innovations and, and the future of human rights around things such as Brexit. Um, and certainly that element of north-south working has been um, perhaps more effective than the east-west working. Um, we don't see a comparator of institutions in uh, in Great Britain and Ireland, for example. Um, so from a human rights perspective, it's, it's certainly an innovative development and it has been working well. Can I then go on to ask you, Catherine, about the consequences of Brexit? Um, I mean, Aoife has mentioned uh, Article 2 of the Northern Ireland uh, Protocol, um, which obviously is significant and, uh, you know, essentially provides for no diminution of, of rights um, provided either under you know, un, 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 under EU law um, and under things down the Charter of Fundamental Rights. But um, you know, what, well, both what have the consequences been, we can come on in a second to what might happen in, in future, but say what are the, the differences post-Brexit compared to pre-Brexit? Well, we talk about Brexit in a few different places in the paper. And I think going back to the tapestry me metaphor, Brexit really does bring into view that interconnected or interwoven nature of threads in the human rights framework. And where we pull on one, there's there's consequences for others. Um, so I, I suppose a few places where we've mentioned Brexit would be um, firstly at the international level. So if we look at the EU, um, regional human rights protections, um, that's something that um, is now in effect in Ireland as, as an EU member state, but not in the UK. And then we have the potential for divergence of, of rights protections and frameworks. And Article 2 of the protocol has been an attempt to, I suppose, limit and monitor that divergence. Um, this is an area of work that, that IFA has done a, a lot of work on. So IFA will be able um, to speak to the protocol in, in more detail. Please, IFA, yes. So I think Article 2 is... is uh, of the, of course, the name keeps changing. So when the Windsor Framework and the Protocol are the same document, it just got a kind of recent uh, upgrade of a name, and um, there in the last the last six months. So just just sort of suppose, so listeners know we're talking about the same document. Um, it it is quite an innovation and actually came from the commissions, which I think is an important sort of demonstration of how important they are, um, because they were raising the the consequence, the rights consequence of Brexit um, well before the referendum. And we're very much point to the potential because you've got things like the um, a Charter of Fundamental Rights within the EU, but you've also got a huge range of directives uh, and regulations. And these were all things to do with discrimination law, employment law, uh, gender equality within the uh, employment sphere, which had really sort of um, I suppose they they and in in Northern Ireland in particular they are the structure 
uh, under which uh, equality and, and anti-discrimination law works. So there was a lot of concern that those would be lost. And what you have in Article 2 is something that is uh, very complicated in the way that it's written and potentially operates as well. I don't say it's the most uh, user-friendly. I mean, when it was published, there was a lot of us spent a lot of time just trying to figure out what it meant. Um, and, and, and we're the ones in the nose, so it is quite quite complicated in that sense. Um, but it's sort of there's two parts to it. One of it, one side is about protecting rights on the day of Brexit. So the day that Brexit happened, what the rights were that were across the island that you could root in the Good Friday Agreement, the 1998 agreement. So the rights that were in Northern Ireland that you could say were also covered by uh, the 1998 agreement. Now, there is lists of rights specifically within the 1998 agreement, but there's kind of rights all over the 1998 agreement as well. So it is those specific lists, but also the sort of more general rights that, that cover things you'd expect, but also things that are particular to Northern Ireland around um, uh, historical um, injustice, etc. But the, they have to be tied to sort of EU membership and the 1998 agreement. So there's kind of like a hurdle um, and it's also the day of Brexit. So from that point, the other half of the article then is is quite different because it lists six directives, six EU directives that are very specific um, around particularly anti-discrimination. But what's interesting about those is that they're dynamic. So they will continue to change. So those laws in so if if Brussels decides to update one of those directives, make it you know either direction, frankly, to make it more concrete or less, I think at the like, likely place of travel is to to exp expand them. But also if the Court of Justice uh, has a case on it and interprets them in a particular way, um, Northern Ireland has to keep in line with that as it changes as it develops over time. So those ones are the dynamic part. So you have one set that stands still and the other part that is dynamic. And when I mentioned earlier about the role of the commissions, I think that's that kind of demonstrates the, the amount of work they have to do, right? So they have, on one hand, they have to monitor that the rights don't go backwards from the day of Brexit. On the other hand, they have to make sure that Northern Ireland keeps up to date. And they have to do that for the work, hopefully, when the Assembly is back up and running, they have to do that for the work of the Assembly. They also have to do it for the work in Westminster. So there's that's a lot of ground and legislation and statutory instruments and practice of civil servants and practice of courts um, to be keeping keeping on top of it. But it has the protocol didn't create new rights, but from a procedural administrative perspective, it has had a major impact. And we've only had one case so far, and um, that case you know, interpreted it as you'd expect it to, to be honest. It, it wasn't a surprise how the court went, uh, or, Chief or Justice Colston went uh, on that particular decision. So that, that wouldn't have been a surprise. But I think how it develops, how it changes will depend from here on um, how the uh, courts interpret it. Because the, the recent name change, bits of the original protocol did change with the recent renaming to Windsor, but the Article 2 stayed exactly the same. That, that wasn't altered at all. Thank you. Um, one point, um, Catherine, which you, you, you raise in the paper um, is, and to quote from your, your abstract, um, whether complexity serves the purpose of comprehensive rights coverage or whether such density lends itself to uh, unravelling. Um, 
and linked to that, um, and I know it's maybe slightly outside your 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 the scope of your paper. Um, you know, the potential added value or otherwise of a charter of rights uh, for the island, as you say, you know, there was work on this 20, 20 years ago. Uh, but again, is there a danger here of sort of unnecessary duplication? Yeah, so I, I think in terms of the human rights frameworks, there's a lot of moving parts um, in Ireland and Northern Ireland, uh, what we're looking at. We can think about the national bodies, the national legislation. We can look at the regional level. We can look at the UN. Um, so there's a lot of uh, different elements or threads to the tapestry that on first blush look actually quite complicated and, and look like this is a very um I suppose, difficult area to get your head around. Um, but actually what we find in the paper is looking at these and mapping these different elements, we can see that they have a complementary nature. Uh, and for the most part, the national, regional and international um, human rights structures work together. Uh, and there's, I think, a utility to, to thinking about that and mapping it out. And I suppose to link in with, with the charter um, for the island of Ireland, um, for listeners who aren't familiar with, with that, um, this was something that the Joint Committee of Human Rights was outlined as to consider in, in the agreement um, the, the possibility of establishing a charter for the protection of rights of everyone on the island. Um, and this would be open to signature by democratic political parties. Um, the document that was produced in 2011 uh, by the Joint Committee didn't actually outline any new substantive rights. So it was a charter which really uh, mapped, I suppose, the existing human rights frameworks and obligations nationally and internationally also. And I think in terms of the, your question about value added, Rory, that might be one value added that the Charter has that we're also seeking to bring in this paper, that we're seeking and the Charter was also seeking to map what looks like a complex area, to break it down and present it um, in an easily digestible and accessible way. And I suppose what the Charter had potential to do was to do that for uh, the general public uh, and for political actors and others operating in Northern Ireland Ireland and Ireland. Um, so I suppose there is um, a value to breaking these structures down uh, and our paper and the metaphor of the tapestry is, is a way to do that um, in an academic context. I mean, I suppose, yeah, I mean, the Good Friday Agreement um, was drafted, of course, short, not, not long before the Treaty of Nice, um, which uh, gave effect to the uh, Charter of Fundamental Rights within the within the EU in, in which I was kind of peripherally involved in. It was, of course, originally intended to be, again, simply a listing or, or, or codification of existing rights from a number of sources. But my understanding is that in the jurisprudence um, over the last 20 plus years, it has evolved a bit, and I suppose the Charter might as as well. Just to, to come back to the question of, of, of the unravelling, I think I understand from what you say, Catherine, that you think the risks, at least we'll come to the possible future stresses, but as things stand, uh, the risk of unravelling is relatively uh, low. 
I think that's where we got to, but there is a, a substantial degree of convergence, if you like, in that respect. But of course, there is always, uh, there's loose threads that could come undone and could unravel. And as Eva has spoken about, the changing um, situation around Brexit was one of them. Um, and that's led to elements of divergence between the two jurisdictions. Um, but on the whole, the, the tapestry does seem to be fairly stable and is an ongoing work in progress as well. So this is not something that's static but we will see further developments across the jurisdictions and internationally too. So we, we need to wait and see, I suppose, what will happen. And I guess that links into your question, Rory, about the future and future developments. Yeah, on, on that, I mean, Aoife, to, to start with you, um, I mean, clearly, you know, it's, it's a regular theme of, of some Conservative Party uh, discourse uh, that the UK should consider uh, either um, leaving... Um, you know, the European Convention on Human Rights, or at least you know, refused to apply certain of its uh, of its of its rulings, and this has arisen most lately in in the context of uh, of, of asylum seekers, but it also I know in the past has arisen in the question of prisoners and the and the and the right to vote. Um, I mean, I take it that you would, and one of the main arguments, in fact, advanced by opponents of any such. Um, Attempt to, uh, to 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 escape from what I say its critics would see as the shackles of the ECHR is precisely that this would have an impact on Northern Ireland and the Good Friday Agreement. But I'm assuming that a- any attempt to, as they withdraw from the ECHR, would have pretty serious, n- not to say catastrophic, uh, consequences. Absolutely. I mean, for the UK as a whole, um, but particularly for Northern Ireland, and it is a much clearer case. Um, I mean, there there are and there was an issue with uh, Brexit from the beginning, but there's a much clearer case uh, on the ECHR because the ECHR is in the 1998 agreement. So there's no there's no coming up, getting away from that. Um, and there's been lots of suggestions saying you're just Northern Ireland, but you can't actually do that. Um, that the Council of Europe doesn't allow for sub sub national parts of because you need, for instance, the UK Supreme Court. To enforce it, ultimately, that is the within the UK's jurisdiction. The, the UK Supreme Court is the highest court. Now, you can't the budget, budgetary issues coming from London. You can't actually disentangle one part. You, there, there could be ways where they they within the UK system where you could vastly reduce it, but keep a much um, stronger version for Northern Ireland because I mean there are for instance um, Wales and Scotland looked about um, bringing in the UN Convention uh, on Children on the Rights of the Child so there, there there can be differences and there are differences across the United Kingdom on rights that's that's all that can happen there isn't necessarily a problem but they can't the UK would have to still be a signatory no matter what even if it was applied in a variety of different ways and I also think from a devolution perspective Scotland and Wales uh, would also be very much anti this and and we've seen this come through with regard to the way the UK constitution works with regard to all aspects in Brexit but I think from this would be also an issue where uh, Scotland and Wales would also have deep concerns um the model that was brought in uh, by um, former former minister now um, Dominic Rab was, I mean, it was very basic. It was a bill. It had a very strange name to it. it was like the bill of bill of rights. It was it was very strange, but it was a very very bl- much a blanket 
type of extreme version um, that would give huge discretion to London. Um, and this has been since Brexit, there's a lot of these types of laws have been introduced, which gives these huge discretions uh, called Henry VIII powers um, to give them their official title. And that, that was very much the, the road. Now, that has been parked. Um, Dominic Rag was very much at the forefront of, of that. So with his uh, political life uh, waxing and waning, the actual uh, um, possibilities have waxed and waned. But very much within UK politics, the attitude towards the Council of Europe is very much tied towards the European Union. There's a lot of interchanging people talking about them as if they're the same body, etc. So it's, there is that similar hostility. As you say, prisoner voting was a potentially one as uh, one in the past. It depends on the politics as to whether or not they would go forward with it. At the moment, I actually think the the chances of them actually withdrawing is is actually quite narrow. I think things like Russia and Ukraine and um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine um, and has a lot to do with it as well about further destabilizing, especially because Russia has has uh, moved away from the Council of Europe. So there's a sort of um, I think the political context is not necessarily favorable, even though there is this ongoing uh, asylum. There's the immigration bill is before. And actually, the UK government have said that the bill as it stands, that they couldn't claim that it is compliant with their human rights obligations. They've been quite upfront about that, which down the road could lead to a potential problem for Northern Ireland, because if this immigration bill is in violation of the European Convention of Human Rights, that puts Northern Ireland into a difficult position. I mean, it's a moving uh, a moving obstacle for those that oppose the, um, it. But again, in, I think in a much clearer and substantive way, Northern Ireland creates a huge obstacle for those who, who just want to get rid of it, get rid of it wholesale. I suppose one consolation, at least speaking at the moment, is that it is a matter for the British um, Lord Chancellor slash Secretary of State for Justice, uh, as opposed to the Home Secretary. Um, and you know, from what one hears, the the new the new Secretary of State uh, it takes a more moderate approach. Just a little anecdote about Rab, a former colleague of mine who who, who was um, our ambassador to the Council of Europe in the mid-teens. Um, he told me just how aggressive uh, and hostile Rab was even then. I can't remember what his capacity was. Was he a junior minister in the Foreign Office? I can't recall when he would come out to the Council of Europe. So he really had a, a serious downer um, on it. Um, uh, from a, I think there was a degree of sort of what was personal. And also, I suppose, the other political factor is that it's very hard to imagine the House of Lords easily or willingly uh, accepting this. Just coming back to you, Catherine, and this, again, is something which was mentioned earlier. I mean, the rights deriving from EU uh, legislation um, are dynamic, as was pointed out. So, in other words, if there is new legislation within the broad ambit of the existing legislation, then Northern Ireland is bound by that. But wh- what happens if the EU um, decides to legislate to create or, or, or to recognise uh, new rights? Well, I think this was picked up on earlier by Aoife in terms of how would the UK, I suppose, respond to that, ensure that the UK and Northern Ireland as part of it is is not left behind. Um, so I suppose we have to, to wait and see what happens in that regard. Um, I think another element to, to think about, though, is the international human rights law framework, because, of course, that is a much broader range of, of provisions. There's nine human rights treaties, kind of core treaties in the UN system. And so the UK government 
is um, is bound by those obligations, which are, are quite comprehensive. So even though the EU has been removed, we do still have this wider framework um, of international human rights law, of the European Convention of Human Rights and, and the national legislation that's come from that. Um, so I suppose it's, it's a moving picture at the moment and, and these things remain to be seen. But I think we need to look at it in the whole as, as part of that wider view of international human rights frameworks that do exist. I suppose, um, again, another you know, potential variable, and again, you've mentioned, is the evolution of our own, um, when I say our own, I should say the uh, Ireland's constitution. Um, this is an all-Ireland um, project after all. Um, and Aoife mentioned the question of, of you know, the possible replacement or the, you know, the proposed replacement uh, of the um, women in the home um, article um, with a, a reference to caring. I suppose there's also been talk, and I think you mentioned this in the paper, about you know, possibly trying to include rights to, uh, to, to, to free water and, and rights to housing indeed uh, in the Constitution. Now it's be interesting to see to what extent that either happens or how meaningful those rights would, would be. But I suppose that that's another uh, potential area of, of, of divergence. And, and maybe Catherine, you could come in on that. Yeah, so the divergence that we do pick up on in the paper um, is two prongs. So one is particularly, I guess, the significance of human rights in the Northern Irish legal cons uh, consciousness and legal order, given the conflict, post-conflict context in Northern Ireland. And that's led to a range of case law nationally and at the European Court of Human Rights, um, which, which isn't mirrored in the Irish context. But the second divergence is around this, this the constitutional differences between Ireland and the UK and that the constitution in Ireland is still a focal point for law and in particular for the courts and constitutional rights are very significant. Um, so if there were future changes to, to the Irish constitution, um, this would open up a new debate. And, and going back to the point on equivalence, there might be discussion about how would that be mirrored in, in Northern Ireland, in the rest of the UK. And I suppose that opens up debates about what what is comparable rights protections and, and how does that work across the two jurisdictions that are constitutionally quite distinct? I suppose, I mean, and not asking you to comment, I suppose we do, of course, potentially have the prospect of uh, the same party being in, in government, both North and South. Um, so it would be interesting to see what um, what impact that might have. But that's a, a matter for another day, perhaps. Um, we're coming to the end of our time. Um, and I just wanted to ask each of you, um, was there anything else that you wanted to say or anything I forgot to to ask you about, um, Aoife? Well, I think what I, I would say is something that the people should keep in mind is that the kind of cooperation that goes on across the two jurisdictions that tends not to be highlighted or forefronted. Uh, and this, you know, we've talked about commissions, but also amazing work that activists do, you know, whether it's on rural matters or women's rights or LGBT or economic and social rights. So things like the right to property, the right to water, which, as Catherine mentioned, from an international level are actually becoming much more accepted as, as rights that are equivalent to the political rights that we are probably more familiar with. Um, and that there is actually a huge amount of support that goes on um, across and cooperation and discussion and across the civil service, which I'm sure Rory is very familiar with. But that the, there is that I think sometimes when we focus on the um, 
purely political, which I'm not downplaying how important the political is. That is, I mean, extremely important, but that there is these these other forms of rights cooperation and discussion and development uh, and support. And I think innovation, um, which has happened in the last 25 years, that is something that we, you know, we can be, we can celebrate and be talked very positively about. Some of it directed by the agreement, some of them arising themselves kind of naturally. And then that, that, that there's a very positive story to tell, I think, with regard to rights that isn't ne- you know, might necessarily be reflected in the political story we might tell, but does in fact you know exist and is ongoing and and is say quite positive and nice to tend on a kind of positive note for me anyway. Uh, absolutely. Well, Catherine, I'll give you the last word. Is there any sort of final comment you might like to make? Thanks, Rory. Yes, I think it would be interesting also to go back to where we began, which is this is one piece of a wider project um, for listeners to see how human rights intersect with many different other areas of law um, in Northern Ireland and Ireland. And in many ways, this is, of course, a standalone piece, but it intersects with, um, you know, environmental law, with even things like land law, health law, etc. Um, so I just would encourage people to look at the rest of the project and, and think about how these, these different areas operate together and that the mapping project is really about the, the whole of the legal order with human rights being one important cross-cutting part of it. Um, so I guess this is just very much the beginning of looking at human rights and the beginning of mapping the legal order more generally in, in Northern Ireland and Ireland. Yes, I should say that in Ireland we're looking forward to publishing, uh, in fact, a, a series of other uh, articles um, spinning out from uh, from this project that you mentioned, you know, led by Professor Oran Doyle. Well, Aoife O'Donoghue and Catherine McNeely, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, I certainly feel that in, in reading your article, uh, Mapping the Tapestry, National and International Human Rights Frameworks in Northern Ireland and Ireland, which was published in the 2023, uh, quote online as, as at the stage in the 2023 uh, part two of Irish Studies International Affairs, where you can find all of the uh, Aaron's articles. Um, learnt a lot from 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 it and enjoyed our conversation. So thank you very much indeed. And thank you, Rory, for, for having us. I very much enjoyed the chat. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Thank you. Bye-bye. Aaron's stands for Analysing and Researching Ireland, North and South. It's a joint initiative of the Royal Irish Academy, which is the premier all-island scholarly institution, and the University of Notre Dame's Keogh Nocton Institute of Irish Studies, which is itself part of the Keogh School of Global Affairs. It was established in 2020 with the objective, especially at that time in a post-Brexit context, of producing authoritative, independent and non-partisan analysis and research across the full range of relevant constitutional, institutional and social issues. And in fact, over the last couple of years, uh, we've covered uh, a quite remarkable range of subjects. And the research can be found in the Journal of Irish Studies in International Affairs, which is published by the Royal Irish Academy, and access to which is free to all online. Uh, The aim is to be scholarly, uh, but also accessible and relevant. Publications began to appear in early 2021 um, and this podcast also began uh, in 2021 in June. I hope that you've enjoyed the 
podcast you just listened to, and I also hope that you will find others of interest on our website, which is aaronsproject.com, and also that you listen out for future podcasts, which are normally dropped on the first Thursday of every month. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>